0: together in 1 Samuel again today, and one of the great benefits to just working our way through chapters of the Bible at a time, book by book, is that it forces us to sit in text we might otherwise skip. This is one of those passages today, and uh, Phil uh, has done a wonderful job of working through it. Phil, many of you know, has served as a resident uh, here at Church on Mill, and he, in Julie are our latest uh, adopted missionaries. Phil and Julie are headed in just a few weeks to Thailand to work on planting churches in a place where there are very few. And so as he comes to preach now, would you welcome him? Thanks, Chuck. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, As Chuck said, my wife Julie and I and Sophie, our daughter, um, are planning to leave first week of July to head to Thailand. And I just wanted to take an opportunity, uh, last time preaching before you, to say thank you to all of you. You guys have been our church family for, for me for the past three years, Julie even longer. But we are so grateful for you. You've loved us well. You've uh, encouraged us and helped us to grow up, grow up in Christ. So you'll be in our prayers, and these last few weeks will be very precious to us. Um, today we are in First Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 47. So go ahead and turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen behind me, and there's also some blue Bibles underneath your seats. Feel free to open those up as well. Over the past several weeks, we've been following the story of how Israel's monarchy was established. And until recently, they had been ruled by a man named Samuel, who was not a king, uh, but was a judge. And he was a godly man. He dispensed justice to the people. But he's getting along in years now. His sons are not following in his ways. They are not just. And on top of that, there are foreign powers that are pressing in on the people of Israel. And so, they asked Samuel for a king. They want a king, like all the other nations, who will fight their battles. And sadly, this request for a king reveals a fundamental lack of trust in God. We can see this in Samuel's words to the people in chapter 12, verse 12. It says there, Samuel says, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. The desire for a king in itself was not a wrong desire, not a bad thing. God always intended to rule his people by a king. However, a desire for a king that grew up out of fear and the lack of trust in God and his ability to save them although he had saved them time and time again was absolutely sinful they were ready to transfer their allegiance their trust to an inferior king to fight their battles and so god gives them a man named saul this is israel's first tragic monarch with that backdrop let's take a look now at our text today starting in chapter 14 verse 47 When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now, if you've been following the storyline here of 1 Samuel, this description of Saul is rather surprising. Because up till now, the author has been going through great pains to show us how unfit Saul is to be a king. He highlights his mistakes, his failures, and yet here, he's cast in a very positive light, it seems. The fact is that by a certain measure, Saul can be described as a successful, victorious king. The Israelites wanted a king to fight their battles, to save them from their enemies, and to an extent, Saul delivers. They get what they want, immediate relief from their distress. But this is not the standard that God uses to measure success for his chosen king. God measures success by fidelity to his word. The king was meant to be a champion of God's word, to lead God's people into obedience to his word. And by that standard, Saul fails miserably, and he's rejected by God as king of Israel. The account of Saul's failure begins in chapter 15, verse 1. Look with me there. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Let's just pause for a moment because I want you to see right away in this verse the connection between Saul's kingship and God's word. I've anointed you as king, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Why? Because Saul, your success as king of Israel is completely dependent on your ability to keep God's commands. And what is the command in this instance? Look at verse 2. This is where things become troubling. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have, Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey." That is a harsh command. And my instinct after reading that command is to try to soften it somehow and make it easier to to digest, try to justify God. But I don't think I can and I don't think that I should. God's judgment is horrific. It's not supposed to go down smooth. Our temptation at this point is to put God on trial and to make ourselves the judge and the jury. We want to find God guilty of being unjust and unloving. But the reality is, it's exactly the opposite. God is the judge, and humanity is on trial. And the terrifying verdict is that we are all guilty. We have sinned, every one of us. We've rejected the word of the God who created us, and the only just punishment is death. That's what Romans 6.23 says. The wages of sin is death. God's command to Saul is not an occasion for humanity to stand in judgment over God. Rather, it reveals that humanity is already under God's judgment. But God is not only just. He is also slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In steadfast love, God has worked throughout the history of mankind to bring about salvation from sin and judgment. In this very text that we're reading today, he's working towards that end. In this text, he's working for the good of his people to give them a king who is able to lead them into righteousness, into the blessings of obedience, and out of sin, out of judgment. The destruction of the Amalekites is the very reason that we need a righteous king who can lead us into the obedience of God. Because without that, we're in the same boat as Amalek, the same position, under the death sentence of a just God. This is why what I want to argue today is that we need a righteous king who can lead us into the obedience of God's word. We need that more than anything else. But that king will not be Saul. He's not the one to do the job. Because as we'll see, he doesn't obey God's word, he doesn't obey his command. How, how can a king save from sin and judgment who is himself a sinner under judgment? Look at me with, look, uh, excuse me, with me at verses four through nine. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telon. 200,000 men on foot, and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So you can imagine the scene here. Saul and his armies sack the city. They kill the Amalekites. And now they've got a city full of wealth sitting before them. They know the command of God. Everything must be destroyed. But their eyes are taking in all these good things. Fat, healthy calves, woolly sheep, strong oxen. What a waste to just slaughter everything. And they covet. And they take, and they break the commandment of the Lord. How often are the commandments of God broken for love of this world? This is the moment that Israel needs a king who can say, Stop! Destroy it! Don't disobey. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart. Don't love this fleeting world. Follow me into obedience. But instead of that king, they have Saul. A king like all the other nations. He's a man who sanctions and participates in their disobedience. And together they pounce on the spoil and take a gag alive. We find God's response to Saul's disobedience starting in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And just a quick word on verse 11. We don't have time to camp out here very long. But I just want to note that the language of God regretting is not the same as human regret. When we regret something as humans, that tends to mean that we did something in the past or didn't do something in the past that we wish we can change, and we can't. We didn't have the foresight to see what we should have done, and now we're bums, we can't change it. It's like, I shouldn't have eaten that, I regret it, but the deed is done, and now you've just got to deal with the consequences. God does not regret like that. In fact, in verse 29, we'll see later on, the text explicitly says, God is not a man that he should have regret in that sense. The regret that we're talking about here is the mourning over Saul's sin. As one commentator put it, verse 11 does not intend to suggest Yahweh's fickleness of purpose, but his sorrow over sin. God expresses sorrow that the man sitting on the throne over his people has rejected his word. Th- this is disastrous. Because God's word gives life. His blessings are attached to obedience to his word in the old covenant. And now the king over his people has rejected that very word. That spells disaster for the Israelites. He's not restrained the people from rejecting his word. And as we've just seen in the destruction of the Amalekites, the rejection of God's word is a death sentence verse 11 and Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel Saul came to Carmel and behold he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal and Samuel came to Saul and said to him or and Saul said to him blessed be you to the Lord i have performed the commandment of the Lord and Samuel said What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. You see Saul's reasoning here. He's not righteous, and he's not the one who can lead his people into righteousness. So he does the only thing that's left to him. He takes his sin and he gives it the form and shape of obedience. He dresses it up like a pig with makeup and jewelry and tries to pass it off as a beautiful woman. It's painful to watch. Look, Samuel, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Isn't she beautiful? Then what am I hearing? Because the commandment of the Lord was to kill all the livestock. And what is the snout growing out of her face? But don't you see the eyeliner and the red lipstick? We brought the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. This is a good thing. He's going to be pleased. No, Saul, that is a pig. That is sin. And God will not be pleased. Verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In other words, God is not interested in religious showcasing. He wants obedience. Real, authentic, wholehearted obedience. And Saul can't deliver. Not for himself and not for his people. Do you see why we need a king that is better than Saul? All of us have a throne that is the seat of our hearts, and someone or something is going to be filling that throne. Someone or something is going to rule our desires and be the driving force behind our actions. And if you have an inferior king on that throne, a king like all the other nations have, he cannot offer you the true righteousness that you need to stand before a holy God and to know his pleasure. All he can give you is rebellion and sin plastered with a superficial shell of obedience. And God finds that kind of fake religion repulsive. In verses 24 through 31, Saul follows up his superficial obedience with superficial obedience. Repentance. Look with me. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. So what makes this fake repentance? In some ways, it seems legit. He's acknowledging that the pig is a pig. He's saying, I've sinned. I've messed up. I think there are two reasons from this text that we can spot the fakeness of this repentance. First, Saul shows in verse 30... His main concern is not his offense against God, but his reputation before the elders and the people of Israel. If Samuel, who was his predecessor, the one who anointed him king, shows displeasure with Saul in opposition to him, Israel's going to see that, and it really does jeopardize Saul's position as king. He's worried about losing the kingship and as we'll see in weeks to come he'll do anything to keep his kingdom secondly Saul's repentance is fake because there's no change in his actions true repentance always leads to changed actions but Saul changes nothing he he didn't kill Agag before and he doesn't do it after he's confronted by Samuel. Samuel is the one who has to do that. Look at verses 32 to 33. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord and Gilgal. The contrast here is almost laughable. In verse thirty, Saul is bowing before the Lord, while in verse thirty three, Samuel is hacking Agag to pieces before the Lord. Saul showcases obedience before the Lord. Samuel obeys before the Lord. In, in the most gruesome way. Saul hasn't changed one bit. He continues to practice the form of religion without its substance, without obedience. So in verses 34 and 35, Samuel, the prophet of God, who has the words of God, leaves Saul, never to see him again until his death. Saul has been rejected by God and the only word of God left to him is one of judgment and rejection. This is a hard passage. I don't expect to answer all the questions that it might raise for you. Uh, Please, come find me after the sermon to talk with me. Talk to someone around you. Uh, It's heavy. But to summarize our passage, what we've seen here is that the author is building a case against Saul's fitness to be king. He's showing why he's rejected. First, Saul breaks the command of the Lord. Second, he tries to pass it off as obedience. And third, when he can't escape the fact of his sin, he gives a superficial show of repentance. So you can see, at every point along the way, Saul completely resists the word of God. And then he masks it with this veneer of righteousness. Saul will not do for a king. He's shown that he'll lead the people astray from the commands of God. And as we've seen, that, that is ruin for the people of Israel. And so in mercy, we find in chapter 15, verse 28... The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now, in the immediate context of this passage, we know that that's David. We'll see it next week. David will be anointed as the next king of Israel. He's a man after God's own heart. But but even David does not fulfill all God's commands. He strays in the most serious ways possible. He's not the one who can lead us into the righteousness that God requires. Ultimately, the better king is Jesus. He is the one who was anointed in his baptism as the true son and king of Israel. And afterwards, he's he goes into the wilderness, he's tempted after 40 days of fasting again and again, and yet he obeys God's commands again and again, at every point. Then he goes on the mission that God sent him on. But unlike Saul's mission to execute judgment, Jesus' mission is to endure judgment on the world's behalf. The sword that Saul held back found its mark upon Jesus when he felt the full fury of God's wrath on the cross. And unlike Saul, who went on the mission but could not complete the mission, Jesus could say, as he hung on that bloody cross, it is finished. And where is Jesus after he completes the mission? He's raised to life, sitting at the right hand of the Father, on a throne, ruling. This is the king who was successful because he obeyed God's word. And this is the king that we need because he can lead us into obedience. He can wash away the guilt of our sins by his death and give us the power to obey by his life. I'd ask you to do some hard self-examination this morning. Ask yourself, Do I have obedience? Not the form of it, but do I have true obedience? Saul's ranks fill the church today. I truly believe there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands who give lip service to God while their heart is set firmly on this world. They will bow before the Lord, but they're not willing to obey before the Lord. They'll give him the lame and the sick, but they pounce on the spoil. The Bible is clear. You you cannot love God and this world. You cannot have both things. You have one master or the other. J.C. Ryle was a pastor at the end of the 19th century, and he had this to say. I don't have it on the screen, but listen. Just sit back and listen. They're hard words, but receive them. He says, The most pertinent question to ask is this. Are you holy? Listen, I beg you to the question I put to you this day. I do not ask whether you attend your church regularly, whether you've been baptized and received the Lord's Supper, whether you have the name of Christian. I ask something more than all this. Are you holy or are you not? I do not ask whether you approve of holiness in others, whether you like to read the lives of holy people and to talk of holy things and have on your table holy books, whether you mean to be holy and you hope you will someday be holy. I ask something further. Are you yourself holy this very day or are you not? And why do I ask so straightly and press the question so strongly? I do it because the scripture says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. If if you don't have holiness, I mean obedience to God's word, you're following the wrong king. Regardless of who you claim to follow, if you don't obey God, you're not following Christ. Because Jesus always leads his people into obedience. I don't mean that your obedience must be perfect. Of course, that's not the case. You will never be perfect in this life. You will always have to fight sin. But I do mean that the true Christian who has the Spirit of God in him will not make peace with his sin and dress it up and call it obedience. The true Christian may fall into sin, but he will never be at home in sin. He will get back up, receive the Lord's forgiveness, and make war on sin once again. He doesn't spend his days dreaming up ways that he can have this world, keep this world, and at the same time call Jesus his Lord. If you find yourself lacking true obedience today turn to the king of real authentic righteousness repent of hypocrisy and sin not not a fake repentance not like Saul's real repentance what what in your life are you going to have to hack into pieces before the lord King Saul was not willing to put Agag the Amalekite to death in accordance with God's word. And I don't think it's a coincidence that on the day of Saul's death, when he's dying on the battlefield and has fallen on his own sword, he calls a young man over to kill him and finish the job. And the young man is an Amalekite. In a very literal way, Saul is killed by the very command that he broke. sin kills. It's pleasant for a time, but ultimately it kills. Don't follow a king who can't lead you out of it. There are others here today who have put their hope in Christ and he sits on the throne of your heart, but you feel defeated and discouraged. You wonder if you will ever be steadfast and consistent in obedience to God. And I hope that this morning, as hard as this text is, you will be encouraged and comforted knowing that Jesus is a better king than Saul. He did not fail in his mission. In his death and resurrection, he didn't just purchase your justification, he also purchased your sanctification. What what I mean by that is, he, he didn't just give you a credit of righteousness that he earned on your behalf. He didn't just forgive your sins. He also gave you his spirit, which has the power to transform your character. Your king will lead you into obedience. He's, he's not Saul. He won't fail. Look to your brothers and sisters around you who've been walking faithfully with the Lord for many years and ask them about their growth in God, the growth that God has given them over time. Of course, they're going to be deeply aware of sin that still remains in them, but they will also rejoice to tell you how far God has brought them. They will tell you the ways that God has killed and been killing sin in their lives. This is the work that the Spirit does. Obedience is a progressive work. It, it, it waxes and wanes, but Jesus will bring you into it. He will complete the good work that he started in you. Continue to call on his name, turn from sin, and to fight the good to fight in the power of the Spirit. It's not something you can do in your own strength. Without a doubt, you cannot beat sin in your own power. But you have the spirit of the reigning, successful King. And by God's grace, He will conquer sin in you over time. Finally, if if you're here today and you're wrestling through who Jesus is, you've yet to put your hope in him, I, I would plead with you to give him the throne of your heart. He is the king that you desperately need. He can lead you into the blessings of obedience and into life eternal. No other king can do that. Depart from among the Amalekites and let let Jesus take the edge of the sword in your place. He loves you and desires that you would turn to him and he would heal your wounds and give you life. The world can give you all kinds of victories. Saul had victories. We saw that at the beginning of her passage. Many victories. His people had them and they got to enjoy the spoils of war. But only Jesus can give you the victory of obedience to God. Righteousness and reconciliation with a holy God. You need that more than anything. Jesus alone is able to do it. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we recognize that you are king all of us have gone astray but you did not leave us in our sin you gave us jesus christ the perfect king who always obeyed who's ruling today god give us hearts to turn to him not to fight in our own strength but to look to you who alone is able to save us from sin and its dominion our hope is in you will you bring us into righteousness And may we know your great pleasure. It's in Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.